7 billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that 1 in 7 billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. Shut up and sit down. see the chat room do a refresh because I had a hard time launching it tonight don't know why uh, tonight we're talking about Rodney McKay and I'm not going to actually take any callers until I finish all the questions on live journal that's how I'm going to stay on topic this evening we'll see how that works out um, just a brief update on me before we get into the topic this week I did absolutely nothing. No, really. I endeavored to do as little as possible and I succeeded. Um, I might have written um, a thousand words, like total. I did some plot stuff with uh, Lady Holder. Does that count as work? Probably not. I, uh, I mean, it was just like a... I took a mental health week for myself because... One of the things that um, you guys don't know is that I, or you might not be aware of, is that I, I do have um, contract work that I work on, and I work for my cousin occasionally in, in her business, and um, I, uh, I do a lot of different things. And so every day I spend 10 to 12 hours working, and I do that pretty much year-round because when you work from home, your work day never ends because you never leave work. And so this week I took, um, I made an effort to kind of let go of that for a little bit and just relax and, and chat with people. And I, I went to the cafe and uh, I uh, took my laptop and did nothing. <laughs> I just drank coffee and talked to whoever came in. It was like social hour. I... Uh, I ran the counter for a little bit just for kicks because that's not real work to me and uh, berated people who came in like a coffee Nazi that I am and uh, that was entertaining. Uh, and uh, that got hectic actually because when people realize I'm behind the counter, they come over just to watch and, and, and it's terrible. And the worst part is is that when you have that kind of personality that people find entertaining when you're mean, and this actually is part of the Rodney conversation, I think, um, they encourage you, and it gets, it, it gets bad. Because <laughs> the more encouragement you get, the, the, the worse you are. And, you know, and being fed, uh, it, it, it's terrible. It's terrible. And um, anyways, I had a lot of fun, and I did as little as possible. So there was no writing update. I did send my rough trades off to my betas to get baited. Um, so that's something, right? That's a little bit of something, but very little. 
Okay, tonight's conversation is about Rodney McKay, and Rodney is a central character in Stargate Atlantis. We first meet him in Stargate SG-1, and he's kind of portrayed as a bad guy. And then um, I fell in love. I I loved every snarky minute of, of, of David's performance on that episode of Stargate. And the only reason I watched Atlantis is because I found out that McKay was going to be a central character. And I was super excited because I love McKay. Um, loved him from minute one. The first time he insulted Carter for being dumber than him, I, it was true love. True, true love. Marriage. Yeah, it, it was that level of true love. Anyways, so when I dipped my toes in to, <laughs> when I, I dipped my toes into Stargate Atlantis, I started out with uh, um, Keller and Ronan, and um, then I I paired McKay with Lauren. And and that was really interesting, and and I really enjoyed that whole series until someone ruined it for me. And then I read An Ordinary Life. And if you've never read An Ordinary Life, you're missing out. It's McKay Shepard. And if you're going to have an introduction into McKay Shepard, it might as well be An Ordinary Life. And... uh I'm sure that someone in the chat room is going to give a link, and if you're listening to the podcast, there will be a link on the page. Um, for that story after I do my broadcast. I'm going to try to keep a list of things that I talk about tonight so that I can make a big comprehensive list afterwards. And Lady Holder's already given us a link on archive of our own and um it's called An Ordinary Life, and Esperanza and Astolat wrote it, and it was my introduction. It was my introduction into um, the McKay uh, Shepherd pairing, and that was all she wrote. I was I was immediately in love. In fact, about a week after I finished reading Astolat's entire fan fiction catalog at the time, as as far as McKay Shepherd goes, I sat down and wrote. Um, we, we've taken different roads, which is the first story in what might have been. And if you don't get the correlation between the title of that first novella in the series, there's a song called What Might Have Been, and it was written by Little Texas. And um, that phrase, we've, we've taken different roads, is a lyric in the song What Might Have Been. In fact, What Might Have Been the series... All of um, the titles of that whole series are either songs or lyrics out of songs. Um, because I found uh, I find music very inspiring, and so in that respect, uh, um, I can tell you without a doubt that music was heavily influenced. What might have been, and McKay, and what might have been is um, he's very different from Canon. And he's um, very uh, just, just very different. I wanted to write a character that, okay, yes, you can see McKay here, but this is what would have happened if he stayed on Earth. 
And it was just, that was the whole idea. You know, what would have happened to Atlantis and to McKay if he had stayed on Earth? And, and that's what I did. Okay. So, um, the first question I have has a word I've always had terrible difficulties pronouncing. Thank you, Lady Holder. How hard is it to keep McKay from being a, mm, a character... Fuck me. Character... <laughs> Hold on a minute. <laughs> One second. Uh, where the fuck is my notebook? Say that word for me. Character? No, that's not what you said. Char- I said a character of himself. That's not how I hear it. Yes, okay. I'm sorry. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to put you back on hold so so I don't get derailed. Characters, (laughs) fuck it. Oh, shit. I hung up on somebody by accident. If I hung up on you by accident, I didn't mean to. My bad. Seriously, my bad. Caricature. Something like that. Anyways, how hard is it to keep him from being that? Of his canon self. It's actually difficult to keep Rodney... um, Sometimes I think that when I write McKay, I make him meaner than he actually is in canon. He's a lot more bold in in, in my fiction than he is in canon. Um, The Rodney we first meet in Stargate is very hesitant. He's not likely to... make some of the decisions that he makes in what might have been or in Ties at Bind or Atlantean Legacy or my new work, Halo, the the Halo AU. So are you out there? Anyway, he, Rodney in, in canon, he's like this tightly contained ball of stress and irritation and he lashes out. He lashes out in in really destructive ways, and um, verbally, and even emotionally. I think you can say that his relationship with Katie and his relationship with Jennifer Keller and his fruitless pursuit a pursuit of um, Samantha Carter, <coughs> all of that was emotional garbage coming out of him where he makes just terrible decisions, just, just terrible terrible decisions about his relationships, his personal um, journey throughout the canon. So do I is – it, is it difficult? No. The, the difficult comes from keeping him contained the way he is in canon because I tend to open um, – I tend to open McKay up like explore him, and then I leave him open, and then he just like explodes all over a scene. I said earlier in an earlier radio show that McKay's dialogue in canon is like a bomb, and John's is like a knife. You know, Ronnie just explodes all over a scene in, in, in fan fiction and in... And in canon, he just explodes onto the screen onto the, and just, boom, he's everywhere. And then you have to deal, and he has to deal with the ramifications of things that sometimes he wished he hasn't said. But he did say it, and there it is, and now it's out, and now he has to deal with it. 
And you get the implication that his childhood was terrible. You don't know for sure, but the implication is there. And his relationship with his sister is borderline abusive. I mean, she calls him by name he doesn't want. Now, I played with that in Can- in um, Stargate. In, in what might have been, he's reluctant about it, but finds it nice when John says it. In Ties That Bind, he finds it horrifying, and John calls her out for it. You know, the, the disrespect of calling him a name he doesn't want to be called. So, anyways, there's that. Do you see your okay? Bemused asks, "Do you see yourself in parts of McKay or other characters?" And if that answer is yes, do you ever have a hard time separating what you would do and how you would respond to something, and how they and how that character would respond? I think every author has a um, has an empathy for their character, and so you develop this this desire have the character be a part of yourself and, 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 you're, and you be a part of the character. And if you're not careful, that can lead to a self-insult. Self-insert. And an insult, too. Yeah, insult-insert. A self-insert, which is about the worst thing you can do. It's like the highest crime you can commit in character development is to insert yourself into the story. Unless you do it on purpose for parody purposes, and then, and then it can be funny. Um, but I think one of the reasons why I'm drawn to McKay as a character, is because we have a lot in common. I tend to run off at the mouth. You might have noticed. A little bit. A little bit. Um, I tend to um, take offense in, in much the same way he does. I tend to... In school, I had a difficult time making friends because I, let's just say that McKay and I have a great deal in common, and and it's really easy to empathize with him and to develop a relationship with him as a writer, with a character as a writer, because it's just, it's all right there. I understand that isolation of of being intelligent. I'm nowhere near um, a genius the way he's described in canon. I uh, I understand the pressure of, of that kind of intelligence and what happens when you don't meet the expectations of the people around you, which Rodney does many times, and he has to pay for that over and over and over again in canon. And the biggest example, of course, is Duranda. Because they held him to a higher standard than anybody else, including themselves. It's like John forgot he woke up the race. And Elizabeth forgot that she helped create a race plague. And so did Carson. They all forgot. And the way that McKay was treated, um, in just canon, Duranda, not even if you dig into fan fiction, is, is horrific. And I understand having people have the expectation of you and, and failing to make it because I didn't want to be a doctor like my mom wanted me to be. And I didn't want to be a lawyer like my uncle wanted me to be, and I didn't join the FBI 
like my cousin wanted me to and um you know so there were a, a bunch of expectations that were that were had for me growing up young growing up intelligent and growing up as an overachiever um i was very smart and very goal oriented and um i graduated top of my class in high school top of my class in uh college i practically aced the act and the sat um I scored in the top five percent on my GRE. Does that make does that for the, for those of you who understand those those tests and, and terms, you you understand. But I didn't want to go to graduate school. I took the test, but I didn't want to go. And I disappointed a lot of people. And that disappointment, even even years later, is still there because I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I wanted to be a writer. So I have this degree I don't even use. And as far as my uncle's concerned, it isn't even in a real science. <laughs> so I understand the um, the pressure of, of being intelligent and isolating yourself and, and not meeting expectations. And um, I am a little arrogant, so I understand that arrogance too. So I do, I do empathize greatly with the character of McKay. I, I work very hard to separate myself from him, and that's actually easy to do because he's a man. And men say and do things that a woman, that a woman would not. Most women would not. Uh, there's a there's just a difference when you write a male character than, than when you write a female character, and there's a different set of um, circumstances that male characters deal with that, women, that that female characters don't. And as a writer, that kind of thing is kind of once you establish a method by which your characters move in a scene and in a story. It becomes second nature, so I couldn't even tell you exactly how I did it or, or, or how I do it today. It, it just became part of my lexicon as a as a writer that I. Um, Melanie Cousin asked in the chat room, "Is it arrogance if it's true and everyone knows it?" Yes, because people expect you to be humble. They really and truly expect you to be humble and to not brag because it's ugly to brag. It's arrogant to be proud of your accomplishments. And even when I was being told, oh, you're so smart, when I was young, in the same breath often I was told this, Oh, you're so smart, but there's no need to throw it in everybody's face. Because even if you're not being arrogant, people assume you are if you speak to your accomplishments. Because arrogance isn't a state of mind. It's a perspective. And it's somebody else's perspective, so you can't even control that. You really can't. I can say, oh, I did a great job on this scene. I, I really loved it. I, I enjoyed the, the craft work I did with that. And another rival would be like, oh, yeah, I did too, or I didn't like this. And, and they wouldn't think I was arrogant. But somebody who doesn't know me, and I'm sitting here talking about how much I loved my own writing, they would think I was arrogant. They would think I was real arrogant. 
like that asshole who asked me in an um, email the other week about if I thought it was arrogant that I have my own weekly radio show. Because apparently they do. Apparently they think that it's arrogant that I assume I'm entertaining enough that you people show up to listen to me. And that I have enough of a following in fandom to, to justify a, a weekly radio show. Little does that asshole know that I could be on the air every single night. I pay for two hours a day. I only use two hours a week. So fuck them. I'm just saying. I'm just I'm just saying for real. You know? But so you can be proud of something that you do and it's like you're proud of it and, and you're not trying to be arrogant. You're just saying, Oh, you know, I, I really I really like what I did with this. Isn't this this is this is amazing to me. And they're going to think you're arrogant. And I think that's where McKay comes in. He's so proud of himself. He's so proud of picking himself up and getting this education. And that's why he's so disappointed in his sister, because she didn't. And he's so proud, and he's, and he's, so, he's so invested in his intellect, because that, that's really all he has to be invested in. When you meet McKay as a character, Sybil says he gives himself props because other people's don't, um, uh, others don't, and that's true. That's true. Um, when you meet Rodney, he's so used to validating himself that when somebody else does it, it just throws him completely off. And when someone doesn't, he doesn't even respond because he expects it. He doesn't expect to be given praise. So when it happens, it's amazing. And when it doesn't, he doesn't even flinch. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the Muse asks, do you have internal head cannons or incarnations of Rodney differ from fic to fic greatly, or is he mostly the same? My internal headcanon for McKay is that he is he is brilliant, he is conflicted, he is um, just short of the autistic spectrum, to be perfectly honest. He doesn't have a lot of social skills. He's um, he's he's intelligent, but his emotional intelligence is practically zero. And I think that comes to mind. It's like one of the things that you learn about extremely smart people is that if they're not socialized and they're not taught to socialize and if they're allowed to skip a whole bunch of grades and, and go to college at 12 or 13 or 14, that a lot of times they don't develop the skills they need to interact with other people. So they come off an asshole or arrogant or unconcerned or completely self-involved. And that's because they've had nobody but themselves this whole time. And when you only have yourself to depend on, you depend on yourself more and more every day. And yes, when, when you're the smartest person in the room, even if you don't say it, people can resent you for it. I met a young man in college who was so smart. He started uh, his freshman year at 15. He could have started at 12, but his parents kept him at home. He graduated from high school when he was 10. Um, the university would have agreed to take him at 12, uh, not as a, uh, a resident, but as a day student, 
but his parents didn't want him to do that. So, but his parents moved to the university city where he was going to go to school, and they put him in at 15, and he didn't get to come live on campus until his junior year. Um, and he was, frankly, the smartest person I've ever met, ever. Um, he clocked over 200 on the IQ. Brilliant, brilliant young man. He works for NASA today. He has three PhDs. He's four years younger than me. <laughs> and, and he's a fascinating young man. He's also um, he has the emotional intelligence of a rock. And he used to, th you know, he told me once, and this is terrible. I'm going to tell you this, and um, he said, I'm not going to say his name, but he said, he said, you know, honestly, I'm really lucky to be Mormon. I said, what do you mean by that? Because he wasn't particularly religious, so I was a little confused because he doesn't, but he didn't go because he didn't go to church. His parents were Mormon, and um, very supportive of him, and despite his. And they really couldn't contain his intelligence, so they just kind of had to adapt to it. And he said, because one day my, my parents will help me find a wife. Now, I know they don't actually have arranged marriages in the Mormon faith, but there is a, a collective kind of, oh, hey, come meet these people and, you know, meet this girl kind of thing. And he did actually end up marrying a, a woman that he met through the Mormon church. So I'm pretty sure it was practically, for all intents and purposes, arranged. And his parents actually did very good. Um, she was uh, she's very smart. She had a degree in psychology. She was a doc. She was a doctor of psychology, and um, they have a couple of uh, interesting but normal children, um, as he calls them. He told me he called me about a year ago, and he was talking about his kids, and he goes, and they're so normal. I said, is that a problem? He said, no, I'm just, I'm just I'm really glad they're normal. He goes, the 16 year old's currently grounding for for grounded for stealing my car. He said, no, I was so relieved. I was so relieved that he did something so normal. I almost didn't ground him. He said, but I had to, right? I was like, yeah, you had to. He said, okay, because I wasn't sure. <laughs> but, yeah, he was just really proud that, that his kid was normal. You know, his kid was doing normal shit at 16 because he didn't do normal shit at 16. And, and, and that's how I see Rodney, not normal. It's not his fault. And he has to deal with the consequences of his intelligence every single day. Every single day. Uh, Marley, Marley asked in the chat room, do you think Rodney could date a random IQ person, you know, someone who's normal, who has a normal IQ? Um, yes. The question is, is someone who considers themselves of normal intelligence, could they date Rodney? Because that's the question. Rodney assumes he's the smartest person on the planet. If he doesn't date below his IQ, he doesn't date at all. <laughs> but could someone of a normal intelligence handle someone as smart as Rodney? And the question becomes not so much 
intelligence as an emotional intelligence, which is why I'm so fond of the McKay Shepherd pairing. Because as stoic as John is, he has twice the emotional intelligence of Rodney, so he has no problem. Accepting Rodney's little quirks and his arrogance and his his uh, his insecurities and his verbal diarrhea, it just goes right over John. John is like like Teflon; it just slides right off, you know, because he's confident in who he is, and and that's what you need in a partner when you're that smart. You have to have somebody who's confident and comfortable with who they are, that they aren't intimidated by your intelligence. But you can take that intelligent argument and take it on anywhere. Could, you know, you, you, you have an extremely beautiful woman. Does she have to date somebody who's also extremely attractive in order to not make that person feel less? Or does she want to date somebody who's so confident in themselves that they don't care how pretty she is or how smart she is or how rich she is? So, you know, it's, you can trade intelligent for anything. You know, musical talent, money, beauty, uh, just anything. And you have to have somebody in your life that is secure and confident in who they are that your accomplishments and your traits and your qualities don't, aren't something that they consider something that undermines them. You have to build a partnership, and that means meeting as equals. And it doesn't mean you have to be as smart or as smart or as beautiful or as intelligent or as wealthy. It's just that intellectually you have to acknowledge who you are and accept that you are equal to everyone, you know, and that nobody is better than you because they're smarter or they're richer or they're more attractive, or or whatever. And you get somebody like Jennifer Keller, who is not confident in who she is, who is struggling to develop her own identity because of, frankly, her age. She's not of an age where she should be dating someone like McKay, who's, who's a powerhouse, intellectually speaking. And she's just, like Katie, she's just going to drown in that relationship. And the difference is that Katie is a grown woman, but she's also a very insecure grown woman. And Keller is just young. She's just young and she's immature and she's self-centered. And she actually thinks that McKay, who, when they meet, is approaching 40, is fixable. That she can fix him in something that she wants. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, the man you get is the man you met. Yes, we can all grow and change as people. We can develop new skills and, and, and explore new ideas and explore intellectual concepts and emotional development. But the man you meet is the man you get. Because at its base, at its fundamental base, we don't change that much. If he leaves his socks on the floor when he's 25, he'll, be, he'll still be doing it when he's 40. I'm just saying. There'll probably be better socks when he's 40, but they'll still just be socks on your floor. 
I'm just saying. Let's put, the, put that out there. You know, so she went into that relationship thinking she could change McKay. Well, that's not going to happen. You can't change something fundamental about somebody's personality just to make yourself feel better. And, th- and that's what she wanted to do. So anyways, wanted a pony. Give this huge uh, comment. Let me switch down to your questions. If you're on the podcast or in the chat room, there is a link to LiveJournal where you can um, go to the, the question post and, and, and look at the questions that have been asked. And I'm going to drop down to um, one of the pony's questions. I answered most all that first question. Um, what do you feel has to stay true to Cannon so that he's still McKay? Um, okay, one thing that I said before is that I have a hard time writing McKay if he's not in some kind of science-related field. Um, I have an AU where he's a um, a teacher, but he, he, but he teaches astrophysics. And he used to work for the government. <laughs> so, so the so the so the Canon McKay is, is is working in the background of that, you know. So I think that I would have a hard time writing McKay as, say, a kindergarten teacher or so for or a writer. But I do love that AU where he is a writer. And oh my God, you're going to ask me about it. Um, John's stationed in um, Antarctica, and he picks up a book, and it's a book that McKay wrote, and he's uh, and he kind of falls in love with Rodney, uh, uh, reading the book, and he goes to meet. He accidentally meets McKay at, at a book signing, and I believe the fic is called Entangled Particles. I'm, I'm looking. Uh, it's by it's it's entangled particles. It's by Zenith. I'm gonna put a link up in the chat room because I've got it already. I did a Google search while I was talking to you guys about that. Um, let me put that on there. Make my list. And in that, he's a writer, and John's uh, disabled out of the Air Force. And it's a, it's a great it's a great story. I really enjoy it for its uniqueness and its romance and it's it's. It's reality, but I don't think I could write it personally. I I have a hard time separating Rodney from his career in science. Okay, in AUs where McKay is a sub, how do you decide how much of his life, both private and public, is controlled by his dom? I I didn't make a decision when I wrote Ties That Bind. I that. Well, okay, take it back. If I made a decision, it was not a conscious one. I didn't sit down and say, hey, okay, this is John's going to control this and control that and control this. In fact, John and Rodney's relationship was shaped more by society rules than by, char- by, than by Rodney's character. There, <laughs> there is one other fic that I, that's outstanding to me that Rodney isn't a uh, scientist, and John's a figure skater, and Rodney um, is playing hockey, and they're at the Olympics, and they fall in big gay love, and it's amazing. Uh, and it's on, I wrecked it on <coughs> uh, Slashboard a long time ago. 
Hold on. And uh, I, I really enjoy it because, you know, John is just like, John's a princess. And, and it, it's amazing. I, I love that fic. It's called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, 2010. It is only 6,000 words, so I might be confused. you might be confusing something else. Somebody else in the chat room said that it was a long fic. I'm not sure it's the same one that you're thinking of. Or the skate coach one. Yeah, the skate coach one is long. But the ice skater hockey guy, the hockey McKay, is not. And I'm pasting that on um, the chat room, and I'll paste it on the, the show summary after the fact. Uh, we uh, so to answer that question, yeah, I have a hard time separating McKay from his uh, career. And um, when it comes to the Dom sub thing um, in Ties That Bind, like I said, th- their relationship isn't so much defined by character, but by by world building rules that I determined as I wrote that first piece. Because I started with Zant's AU. And I kind of explode all over it, and I hope she doesn't have a problem with that. <laughs> I mean, I asked her if, if I could post it, and she agreed. But I'm not sure she's ever read it or, or finds what I did with her concept horrifying or whatever. And, I, and I've never asked, and because that's none of my business what she thinks of my work. But um, you know what I mean. You know, it's just, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, final question from Once a Pony. In a broader sense, in what ways or to what extent do you think your fanfic characters should reflect canon counterparts? <laughs> I think they need to be recognizable. I, I think that you have to have the essence of the character um, in it from the very start. And that way you don't end up losing the character as you're writing. So you have to keep the essence of the character from canon. You have to make uh, decisions about what you can get rid of and and what you can't. And for each character, that's different. Like you can say that, you know, oh, John's not military, but that's a huge part of his character, so you have to explain why he's not part of the military or, you know, redefine him in, 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 in another way. I think that one of the best non-military Johns out there, I'm not sure, I don't remember if he was military before the fix started or, or maybe he was. Maybe he left the Air Force, um, and that's a farm in Iowa. Um, John runs a farm, has a farm in Iowa that he, that he inherited, and uh, excellent series. Rodney's part of Stargate. Uh, they meet by accident when, when Rodney has an act. Uh, he either runs out of gas or his car dies. Or Anyway, it's called a farm in Iowa. I highly recommend it. And they're saying in the chat room that John was... Um, in the Air Force or the military, and that he had left it by the time the chat... By the time the um, fix starts, and I adore that series uh, for Finn. I love Finn in in that series, and I, I I love Baby Jesus, which which is Finn's chicken, and it's just it's it's a great great AU where Rodney's a teacher who has a 
small connection to the SGC that kind of gets big and ugly later. And John is not in the Air Force anymore, and, and he's running a farm, and, and he's living this life that Rodney thinks he doesn't want, but he but he really, really does. It, it's great. It's a great story. I, I really enjoy it. So, okay. Rowan asks, do you practice Rodney's snort voice on anyone? You handle manly bitchiness so well, and I don't want to assume it's a natural versus a trained talent. You can assume. You can assume. Um, I stepped out of the womb, bitchy. No, no. <laughs> but there is a difference between me being bitchy and, and Rodney being snarky. Rodney is very sharp. He's he's biting he's bitter and when he goes off on a tangent he's insulting and it gets personal and i don't i I rarely do that i i get bitchy yes and i can be a snarky little twat if if, if i want to be but there's a big difference you know because rodney goes for the jugular and if you make him mad he's going to make you so furious you can't breathe And, and and that's the difference. I um if let's put it to you this way, um I am more likely to actually physically eviscerate somebody than actually to to verbally eviscerate somebody. And McKay's the opposite of me. <laughs> so that's what I say about that. Um Dog Squirrel, I love your guys. Live journal names, that's fabulous. Character-wise, how did you determine what you could and could not alter about Rodney between your AUs and canon? Again, it, it, it comes to respecting the character, and thanks, Barbara Gillespie, for the link to an, uh, a farm in Iowa verse in the, um, in the chat room. Uh, it, um, <clears throat> you have to pay attention to what makes the character the character. And, and what is essential to the character, so that when you pull him out of canon and drop him down in AU, you you have to know up front how he's going to react and how he's going to respond and, and move around in your alternate universe and what's he going to do and and how it's going to work. And just these are questions that you ask yourself as you move into a story and as you move your character around a scene. And, um, there, and it's really difficult to tell you what I kept and didn't keep. Just because it's a natural process. I've been writing for uh, 27 years. No, not 20 yeah, 27, Jesus, I am old, oh my God. I've been writing for 27 years. And when you write as long as I have, sometimes it's hard to break your process down and explain it. It's it's difficult to um, talk about why you make the decisions you make and how how because they're they're instinctual. It's kind of like driving a car 
When you first start driving a car, you're very conscious of everything you do, and you look in all your mirrors when you when you change lanes and you turn, and and you turn your signal on 15 feet before you get near a stop sign. I mean, or or whatever. You know, you're just you're you're very careful about everything you do behind the wheel of a car. But 10 years into driving, you don't. You're not. You're not that careful. You don't even think about it. It's just like second nature when you, when you get behind the wheel of a car. You're moving around doing your thing, and um, you, you don't pay attention to the things that you do naturally. And when it comes to building a character and moving that character around in a scene, you end up you end up developing habits that become second nature, and, and they're difficult to dissect and discuss. So um, it's just you have to pick – you have to determine what makes your character your character, what makes your character unique in their canvas, and then move that uniqueness wholesale into the AU and determine how your environment is going to change that character and how the rules of your new world are going to impact that character's development and their history and their career and, and, and all of that, because it all plays. But I think if you stay honest as a writer, honest with yourself and honest with your character, and you keep your character honest and you don't hide behind foolishness, like, oh, well, I didn't want to do it, but my character did. Bullshit. I didn't mean to write that. It just happened. No. No. Be honest with yourself. You don't actually have a muse. Nothing gets written down on paper that's not a product of your mind. It's all coming from you, so it's your responsibility. And you can't throw it off on some imaginary creature that doesn't actually exist. And you can't blame your character because you just can't blame your character, okay? <laughs> yeah, you have to take responsibility for your, for your own shit. And, and and when you do that, when you take responsibility for your character and your story and, and where it's going to go and how it's going to be, you will stay honest to your character and you will stay honest to your to, to your original vision of the story and you won't go off on a tangent and you won't end up with a 500,000-word epic when that wasn't your intention to begin with um, and there is a difference between being further inspired by a work and continuing to work on it and developing a plot that has 25 different subplots. Really? But if you're going to do that, you need to own it. You just got to own it. You just got to own the things that you do. Whether it's in writing or in real life, you have to own your behavior and you have to own your life. And so one of the things that I like to do with McKay is to make him own his himself and his decisions and his words, to make him own it and make him be brave about it. And that's the thing that I like to do with McKay is to make him brave. I don't believe him a coward. We've discussed this before on the radio show. Um... 
being brave isn't the absence of fear. It's the conquering of fear. And I like to do that with McKay. I, I like to put him out there and, and conquer his fear and, and conquer his his conceptions of, of himself and just make him go get his man and, and win the day and shoot somebody in the head if they need it. You know, just... You know, live a big life. And I think that's why I really enjoy riding McKay and Shepard is because their life is so big and canon and it's so much fun to take the fandom and the fan and just give them this big, huge life with a private plane and the kids they didn't expect and just, you know, just just make it big and, and fun. And, and that's, the, I think, the, the part about what might have been that I enjoy the most is that he is that their life is so big and ridiculous that it's that it borders on insane and it's so fun. It it's so fun to to write there and to be there. Anyways. <clears throat> Silverballs asks, do you figure out all of your characterization quirks? First and fit the plot around them, or is your, or is it the reverse? Plot first and quirks. Um, it's neither, because that implies that it's a very neat, perfect fit, and that isn't my goal as a writer to be neat and perfect. I don't mean like grammar or, or spelling wise. I mean life is messy, so. My stories are messy, and no character is a perfect fit for their situation. You know, there's there's chafing, there's something's not going to go right, there's there's going to be this, there's going to be that, oh, I hate that person, I can't believe they're here, why are they here, who decided it would be a good idea to bring Kavanaugh to Pegasus? <laughs> so, that's what you do. You take your character and you put them down in a situation that they're not a fit for. They're not perfect for this. And you and you work with them. You, you work them through this scene. You work them through this this plot that you've developed. And so I don't uh, merge the two into some kind of puzzle. It's more of um, uh and water maybe I don't know it, 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 it's difficult to explain but um, they're separate endeavors when, I, when it comes to plot and character the, when they mix is when I determine how my characters are going to respond to a plot point like in the scene where the NID attempts to kidnap Sebastian and they beam into the mountain to get to him and Ian gets shot, and this and this happens in in what might have been. Um, Ian gets shot, and Rodney shoots two NID agents in the head. I knew that plot point was going to happen when I was writing February's song. And Rodney has the gun in his in his hand, and he's thinking about liquid courage and and how he's drank most of a bottle in order to put this gun in his hand, and he's sitting there with it, and and the weight of it, and the weight of that gun follows him 
from what might have been um, February song all the way through to that novella where he shoots two NID and agents in the head to save Sebastian's life because this agent has already decided that he's not getting out alive and his end game is to get rid of what they consider a threat. If, if they can't control the threat, they're going to kill the threat. So I knew writing that scene in February song that that that, that the weight of that gun was going to follow McKay all the way through to that scene where he shoots two people in the head. And so if if, if you look at the scenes in between, the scene where Sean finds Rodney with the gun and Rodney shoots those two people, every once in a while there will be a moment as they move through these events in their life where the weight of that gun comes back to McKay when John's making him practice. When well, the, the, the first time the weight of that gun hits McKay is when John was so outraged and so horrified that not only was Rodney going to kill himself, he was going to use John's gun to do it. That's the first time the gun gets a little heavy Er, on McKay. Then John makes him learn to shoot, something that in the past he's let Rodney skate on repeatedly over and over and over again, and the weight gets added. And so you see this progression, or at least I hope you did, that was my intention. I don't know. Sometimes you do things as a writer, and, and you want there to be a progression. You want the reader to see these connections and these scenes that are so separated, but actually they're connected in a, in a, in a way that you you hope your reader gets. And so, you know, I I hope that if you didn't get it at the time, that when you reread it, you will, <laughs> at the very least. And you see the weight of the gun. And here's the thing. In the scene with Sean and Rodney, Declan and Sean make Rodney put the gun down. They make him put the gun down. If you skip forward to the scene where John is watching the video of Rodney shooting those two NID agents, there is a moment when Rodney, after he shoots these two men, he very calmly puts the gun down again. He's separating himself from that gun and, and what he did with it. And that was on purpose, and that was a very intentional bit of characterization that I did. And I hope that even if you didn't get it at the time, again, if you go reread it, that you will go, oh, hey, look at that. I, that wasn't what I expected. And that will be great. I appreciate that. <laughs> if you get my my little writerly things after the fact, even if I have to point them out to you, I, I always appreciate that. Flutterby says, 
You generally pair Rodney with John. Could you see anyone else with him, man or woman? And if so, who and in what circumstance? Well, I've written Rodney with Lorne, and they were on Atlantis. Um, I've written him having a past with Jonas Quinn um, when, he, when, when Jonas was on Earth. I've written him having a past relationship with uh, with Cameron. And then, of course, there was the man, Hor McKay, who had a past relationship with practically everybody. Uh, <laughs> Katie, Keller, Sam, uh, David Parrish, Evan Lorne. Like, that was an emotional clockwork because Rodney was a whore. And... Um, I really enjoyed writing him that way too. Just you know, and uh, Daniel, yes, in, in in ties that bind, he had a past relationship with Daniel um, Jackson. He also had a past relationship with my OC Thomas, and of course Gerard. And he uh, had a past relationship with Sumner, much like uh, John did. So while I can pair them sexually with other people. Romantically, my OTP for Stargate is is McKay Shepard. And for those of you who don't know what OTP means, my one true pairing. R- romantically, I I I really enjoy putting McKay and Shepard together. I like the the uh, the twist of it. You know, Rodney's arrogance and and John's laid back persona, and um, Rodney's um, intelligence um, and John's emotional um, constipation. Because yeah, <laughs> while Ro- while John might be better at reading people and being, and he's actually kind of, you know, you can see it in, in canon. He he gets people a lot better, so he has a lot better social skills, and he's and he's more emotionally intelligent than than Rodney. But that honestly isn't saying much. Um, so it's so it's interesting to put them together, and, and and to play with that. So so they're my OTP. I can't write them having sexual relationships with other people, but romance is always going to be McKay Shepard probably from now on till ever. Okay. Shattered Attorney asked me, how do you think McKay would react if he met someone who was smarter than him? Canon Rodney would never believe it possible. <laughs> no. <laughs> you might know. <laughs> and this is the man that calls Sam Carter a dumb blonde. <laughs> Just no. He's 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 not going to believe it. So anyways. Bemused has a few more questions. There are aspects of Rodney's canon character, like his citrus allergy, his confidence levels, his relationship with his sister, that you choose to emphasize or treat differently from work to work than how you didn't how, how they did in the show. What is your favorite trait to tweak or change, and why? I like to change his relationship with his sister because it bothers me. Let me tell you why. Um, me and my sister 
we don't always get along, but we're a team. And if something goes on or something happens and, and she needs somebody to be at bat, I'm there too. You know, if like I, like I told her husband a few months ago, they were arguing in front of me, and I was sitting at their kitchen table, and I had um, I was teaching, I was helping one of their youngest one with some math problems. It was um, they do summer school work just to keep them because anyway, anyways. So the littlest one, he's like six. He was doing um, he was counting apples or something. I don't remember. Anyway, we're sitting there, and this asshole. My, my brother-in-law turns to me and says, "And what do you think?" I said, "You don't want to ask me my opinion." He said, "Yes, I do. I, I, I really want to know." I said, "Okay, she's right, and you're wrong. You're never going to be wrong. You'll be wrong ten days after you're in a hole." And here, I said, "Here's the thing: you obviously don't get. I'm not that person who would talk her out of killing you. I'm that person that would help her hide your body." He stopped asking my opinion after that. Just put that out there. I like to move that around so that Jeannie is is in McKay's corner. And that that isn't the case in canon. She's um so uh so I like to play with that. Um I like to build Rodney's confidence up. I I, I like to start him low. He's low in what might have been for reasons that, you know, he, he had a heart attack and it really fucked him up. And ties it behind, you know, Sam Carter's reason he's low. But as he moves through the story and scene by scene, he gets, he he grows and, and thrives and, and becomes confident in, in who he is. Okay. Bemused asks, is there a particular episode of SGA that really defines Rodney's character for you or impacts how you write him in fic? There are actually Duranda. I forget what it's actually called, that Duranda episode. Um, the Tower of Rodney where he almost, um, or where, where he almost ascends. McKay and Mrs. Miller, and The Shrine. I think that if you're a Stargate fan, and especially if you're a Rodney McKay fan, and The Shrine doesn't get you right in the heart, then you're not really a McKay fan. I think that stands out as the best work David Hewlett did in the Stargate series. The Shrine is amazing for its... It's just the only thing that really ruins the shrine for me is the part where he tells Jennifer Keller that he loves her. And I like to believe that he wasn't talking to her, that she was just filming it, and that he was talking to John. (laughs) That's my headcanon. (laughs) So in the shrine, in that last five minutes, she's watching that. John was standing beside her, and Rodney was actually talking to John, and Jennifer was just recording it. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's my headcanon right there. And she just likes to pretend that he was talking to her. Anyways. Bemused asks, she has a whole bunch of questions, but they're good ones. 
he or she. I don't know. See, the thing is, sometimes I can't tell what you, what. You, I don't mean to be insulting. So if I call you a she and you're actually a he, don't get mad and vice versa because I don't mean anything by it. Um, do you have a favorite version of Rodney among your fix? If so, why and which one? I I have to say that the Rodney McKay in Ties That Bind is my favorite. Um, I I really enjoy that. I um, I really enjoy his characterization. I like his development and his journey as both um, a character and and um, as a submissive. I like his strengths and his weaknesses and his mistakes and his triumphs. I just um, I I really love the McKay and, and ties that bind, and I think that's why I haven't written the last. <laughs> episode of Ties That Bind, because I'm not actually ready to part with with him and with it, and so I, and, 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 and so I keep putting it off. So sorry. My bad. Okay. This question kind of falls into that. Rodney has some serious self-confidence issues in Ties That Bind. Do they come to a head or get resolved during the finale? I think that... Self-confidence is a never-ending sort of accomplishment. It comes and goes. It doesn't take, it takes years to, to build yourself up, and someone can destroy that in five minutes. You can build yourself and build yourself and build yourself, and then someone just comes along and just punches you right in the face, either physically or or verbally, and it can take you back to that place you were 10 years before because we're not static. (laughs) We're not static. We grow, we change, we move, we, we fall, we evolve, we de-evolve, we, we have setbacks. And so um, will his self-confidence issues be truly resolved? No, because no one's ever are. We're not there yet as a species. And that, and that makes us interesting. Um, there will be a resolution and some closure, and there's going to be a happily ever after, I fucking promise. And, um, and, and, yeah, so, and it's going to be happy and, and, and beautiful, and there's going to be some really hot sex, and, um, so, yeah. Anyways, <clears throat> I have that all plotted out. In fact, I have, like, four or five different spots in my plot that just say really hot sex. <laughs> okay, um, what scene or part with Rodney has been the hardest and most emotional for you to write, and which scene has been the happiest and most fulfilling for you to write? Well, that was a great question. So, thank you. Um, the scene or part that has been the hardest or most emotional to write. I I, I want to go back to fe- to February song when when John when when, when John is missing 
and, and Rodney is um, teetering on the edge of, of suicide, and he has lost his way, and he's he's learned how emotionally invested he was in John. And I'm going to make a confession here. Um, one of the most difficult pieces of fiction I've ever read in Stargate, this is not the confession part, is um, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. And if you're a Stargate fan, you, you owe it to yourself to read it, whether you read Slash or not, because there's no Slash content in it beyond the epic love that that Rodney has for John. Um, it is a beautiful, mind-numbingly, heartbreaking story, and I read it once a year, and every time I read it, I cry like a baby. It is the most beautiful piece of fiction in fandom, no matter the fandom. It is outstanding work, both from a writer perspective and a reader perspective, bar none. There is no better fic in, fan, in Stargate fandom. None. Not, I, no, not even my own. Or I don't know anybody. No. Her, that, that's it. That's the, that's the epitome we all reach for. That's what we all want to accomplish as writers. It's, it's amazing. And um, I had read that my annual reading, about a week before I started February Song, and that's my confession. I was really emotionally invested in, in Rodney's angst already from reading Freedom. And <laughs> so what might have been is that it is not necessarily a really heavy fix to begin with, and but February Song is like this rock sitting in the middle of it, it's like boom. And, and that's why, because it, cause Freedom left me wrecked. Again, like it always does every year, and I made the mistake of, of, of writing February song, which I knew was going to be the heaviest part of what might have been to begin with, and I I wrote it while I was still recovering from reading <laughs> from reading that song. There is a sequel, and it's called "And the Band Plays," and the and, and the band's playing "Hail to the Chief," and it's amazing too. Of course, her. Her writing is awesome, but freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Is it's it's epic. I know. Even if you don't read Deathfic, and if you don't, oh Barbara, don't post that. <laughs> Barbara posted something from. Oh, don't do that. I'll cry. I'll cry right here. <laughs> But even if you don't read Death Vic, and the death takes place off scene, and and basically it's a story about grief and, and moving on, and 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 living your life, and 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 being, being good, and and the thing is is that life is is a death sentence. We all go, and sometimes in your life you encounter somebody who changes you fundamentally. Everything about you, everything you're going to be, everything you used to be is, is different because of this person. And that's the story that Rodney tells in, in Freedom, that it, it, it's just, I can't even tell you how much it moved me. 
as a writer and as a reader. Just amazing. So um, when I went into February Song, I was already pretty much an emotional wreck. <laughs> Put that out there. And so I started, and I'll tell you, there's a scene in, in February Song where Rodney's picked up a picture of John, and he's looking at it, and he's just he's just overwhelmed with loss and, and grief, and, and that was difficult. Um, but that isn't the most difficult. The most difficult scene that I wrote for McKay um, is the scene in, in what might have been where um, – a soldier, the, the February song was the most emotional. The hardest to write is the scene where the soldier in, in, in the mountain corners Rodney while he's in the shower and makes it clear that Rodney's fair game to him and, um, and that it would rape. That there's going to be that 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 that, that was his intention to 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 write McKay, McKay. and um, that was very hard to write for me personally. It's um, I kept it very non-explicit, and I tried to 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 move through it quickly. And it there there are things that you write that you don't want to write. And, and that was one of the things that I, that I wrote that I didn't want to write, but I believed that it was important for character development and plot development to move into an, an, another, um, to, to move forward. And the thing is, is that kind of thing happens. And, you know, life is, is a mixture of, of terrible and good things. And, I, and it's, in, it's in When You Kiss Me, and Lady Holder just posted a link. And I... It it was very hard to write, and and it wasn't explicit at all, and, and and it was just an attempt, and it was more of a threat than an attempt, and there was some inappropriate touching, and it, it equaled ex- sexual assault, and that's as close as I would ever get ever to to writing rape, and I probably will never write anything else like that again because it, again it was it was very emotionally um it was difficult for me um. And of course, there's the scene from Ring of Fire that most of you have seen from from that I've got that's not actually published. It's in my um, it's in the Rough Trade group on Facebook, and and that was difficult to write. The idea that that, that Rodney and Sebastian are dead, they're not, but that, that's the idea. And um, John comes into the idea, you know, into the situation, believing that he's lost them both, and dealing with that is is very very difficult. Okay. Says, which has been the happiest and most fulfilling for you to write? That's a that's an interesting question. I, mean, I have to think about it a little bit. I there's so many times as a writer as I, when when you move through a project that you. You, oh, I like this, or oh, I like that, and this is great. I'm, I'm really enjoying what I've done with this scene here. Um, but emotionally fulfilling. I, I really, really enjoy it when Rodney can put somebody in their place and just be as vicious as possible about it. I, I really enjoy that.
This is terrible. I'm also, I was also really emotionally invested in that scene um, where John killed that guy that was um, hired to kill Rodney. I, I really enjoyed that, too. I'm just saying. That's just me. I'm, I'm kind of terrible that way. Okay. Oleander writes, When you wrote Rodney and Ties at Bond, did you create a house around him, or did you create him with the house in mind? I wrote... I actually created Decide for Rodney. I stopped mid-scene. I plotted the first um, novella of Ties at Vine, and um, I stopped mid-sex scene. I just stopped completely and went, oh, wait, I've got a big problem. And I went back to the plot board, and I, I need pleasure houses because if Rodney is going to train his mind and be educated and have all these degrees, he's going to have – yeah, there's – we, we need formal pleasure education because it makes sense. Because as a species, when we we have developed to the point where teaching each other is just part of who we are as a species, so it makes sense to me that a species that's always been dynamic, that they would have teaching situations in these pleasure houses would have developed over time because even now the sub-community of, of, of that community has teaching situations where you can – be taught and seek out a mentor that that happens today in reality so i knew that that was possible and so i created the sod for rodney straight up for rodney so that that question is, is did you consider any other house for Desaad, for rodney and the answer is no because i created the sod for him um Will we get to find out why Rodney chose to become an engineer in a pale horse? That's my Halo AU. It's an excerpt only right now. Um, I don't know. I think that I'll definitely be exploring Rodney's character a great deal. As far as why he um, chose to become an engineer, it it boils down to um, that desire to be connected to another person in a very permanent and extreme way. You know, it's some of us are built for that kind of thing and some of us are not. Is it easier to write from John's perspective perspective because you and he share a love for Rodney? I believe so, yes. I, I believe that I tend to write from John's perspective because I kind of love McKay as much as John does. Anna says in the chat room, Pale Horse reads amazingly. Well, thank you, Anna. That's a rough draft. Um, I wrote it without – there's like there's only like a tiny plot. There was like five plot points, and then boom, there was Pale Horse. Um, and I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. But th- there you go. So that was maybe four or five hours of work and very little plot. So hopefully the finished project will be amazing. <laughs> If you had to put Rodney in a house at Hogwarts, what house would it be and why? We, in an earlier radio show, we kept, was it last week? Last week we put, um, I, put I, ha, I sorted everybody from Stargate into a house, and I picked Gryffindor. I picked Gryffindor for, um, for John and Rodney. Uh, I don't really remember the others, but I definitely picked Gryffindor for, for Rodney. 
I kind of see John like Harry. Melanie says um, that John would be a, a Slytherin. I see John like he's a grown-up Harry Potter, and so he would be um, he would beg to be in Gryffindor because if he was put in Slytherin, he would have to. Um, uh, live up to his potential. <laughs> I'm just saying. Vala is definitely Slytherin, but we we but we there. I think it was last week's episode where we just sorted everybody in Stargate into a into. Um, but no, I would definitely put uh, John in Gryffindor, and but he would have begged. Um, he would be a hat stall, and he would have begged for Gryffindor because the last thing he wants to do is be like the rest of his family and the rest of his family's in Slytherin. <laughs> He's a serious black Stargate. Okay, anyways, um, that is... <laughs> Aardvark asks... No, seriously, I, I love your guys... Um, Lodrell names. What music would any of your Rodneys listen to, if any at all? Classical or rock? Um, the 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 Rodney and what might have been is mostly classical music because he was classically trained um, as a kid for the piano. I think that McKay in general would be someone who just loves music. Loves all music would have would just would just absorb it all and pull it all in and and, and, and take it with him because um, just music 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 you know all of it and he would you know except perhaps that stuff that Lady Holder makes me watch sometimes on YouTube that K-pop yeah. I have junk food. Barbara Barbara says in the chat room that she's running for ju- for junk food. I've got junk food. Um, I have a whole bag of uh, Cheetos. It's terrible. Oh, Sybil, if you don't know, run from it. Run. You don't want to know. See, now it's too late. Lady Holder's going to tell you all about it, and there will be videos you'll have to watch. Sybil, you've been caught. You've been caught. It's terrible. Okay. Do any of your Rodneys have hidden loves, people's places and things? I think that Rodney in canon loves John. And it's not so hidden. And what might have been, even though he pretends otherwise, I think Rodney deeply loves his family, everybody, and um, his sister, and he's, uh, you know, Radic, and he's just, he's he's very emotionally invested in all of them, and but he doesn't want to be. In Ties That Bind, you know, even though he doesn't say it, maybe doesn't even believe it, Rodney is deeply, deeply in love with John. So, there we go. I think I did extremely well for staying on topic. I uh, 
wow, I'm like really pleased with myself an hour and a half, and I totally managed to, even when I went off on a tangent, I kind of pushed it in. Yeah, isn't that great? For those of you who don't listen to my broadcast regularly, I do tend to have a problem staying on topic. But my, it wasn't my fault last week. Last week was terrible. The phone line kept messing up and got hung up on. It's pretty damn bad when you get hung up on yourself. Anyways, <clears throat> lady host on the phone. So I'm going to let her talk. Hello? 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 She, Can you hear me? She just walked away from us. Where were you? I did not. I was. I had my headphones on. I don't know what the problem was. <laughs> yeah. Did you charge Hello. it? You always had, she always asked me that. Did you charge it? <laughs> it's because you put the thing on the charger and walk away, and it's not even connected, so the light isn't on. It wasn't fucking plugged in is what it was. That's kind of helpful. That, Otherwise, no electricity gets my, in. That wasn't my fucking problem. That wasn't my fault. <laughs> So we plotted what um, yes, we uh, did. beautiful and dangerous things this week, and we yes. um, we uh, <laughs> we we plotted Q from um, James Bond into our fic. It's gonna be great. <laughs> he's getting he's getting surgically dropped in in certain places, and which means that we, we get to reread the whole thing and, and actually figure out where we can put them in. But so far we've got, what, three mentions, and it's only about four lines that, that did it. So Yeah, but yeah. boom, inserted. Yes. The one from uh, 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 Skyfall. Yes. The cue from Skyfall. Yes. We, we're not going to have, cle- uh, you know, um, Cleese's Q or, or Llewellyn's Q? God, no. Hell, that's just... Hicks. Not old Q, but Q, young Q. Yeah, young, pretty Q. Fucking idiot. Anyways. No. So, Lady Holder, let's talk about your Rodney McKay. My Rodney McKay? Oh, okay. Yeah, um, that is our topic. My, this is true. <laughs> um, my Rodney McKay is... It's amazing how much you've influenced my Rodney on a, uh, with some of the later stuff I've written where um, it's after you and I started talking. And um, Zila, I'm just going to say his name is not Willoughby. We're not that horrible to a guy, although we did pick a Q name. Getting back <laughs> on topic. Just for cliche God. purposes. <laughs> yes, of course. There's a reason he picked the, name, the letter Q to go by. Um the Rodney has always been, even when I was watching this show and, you know, the, the oh so lovely, fucked up, weird, contradictory canon that they've got, um, he, he's always been braver than they ever gave him um, credit for. And so um, I couldn't write a Rodney who was a wuss. It just it didn't work. There there were no there was no way he was going to be somebody who did not have that that you know stainless steel spine that 
you could push him so far but no further. And once you hit that point, all bets are off. I mean, he may not he may not physically fuck your shit up, but you know he's going to fuck your shit up. One good example <laughs> of that is is the the um, the storm in the eye. Okay, hello. Mm-hmm. He scared shitless of Coyla, and yet what does he do? He bluffs him. He does everything he can do to buy time for John to basically go on a murder spree all the way through Atlantis and get the get the, the city back. And apparently I'm horrible because I gave somebody a K-pop intermission. Hi. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Yes, I found it. I, I watched it. it. It's occasionally fun. So... Um, the, the, most of my Rodneys are, well, they're little assholes who, um, they, they've got their own problems. They've got reasons why they are the way they are. Um, Marley is saying that she loves my Rodney in an uncomplicated choice. Um, that particular Rodney was based off of a lot of canon. Um, he, Rodney, it, to me, and and you mentioned uh, something that I tend to agree with. He's one of those kids to me that they found his family found out he was a genius very early. They fed the genius. They didn't feed the child. They didn't yeah. socialize him. They didn't. They didn't make it so that way he could actually understand the social cues around him. And so that's, in a lot of ways, what I was trying to um, to write because, you know, he's he's not obviously he's not unintelligent, but he just doesn't give a rat's ass about. Um, the polite rules of society that we use to keep everybody from murdering each other. And so it doesn't mean that he doesn't see them. He just doesn't care. They don't apply most right. of the time. And so um, for the areas that he actually pays attention to to things, um, he can look at a situation and, you know, within, oh, you know, a couple of minutes of looking at the situation, if he's paying attention, figure out what's going on. Because that's what he saw with, you know, what was happening with the political situation on Earth and with Stargate Atlantis and Landry, who was being, to use a new phrase, was being a douche canoe because he didn't really care. He His focus was on Earth and Atlantis was getting short shrift. So... And <laughs> she also, uh, Marley also comments, some moments are heartbreaking how he tries to reassure himself about uh, their future um, child, that how they're, they're going to raise this kid. John's emotionally constipated. Rodney has verbal diarrhea, and both of them would far rather get you know, far rather go hand-to-hand with a race than deal with emotions. There's a reason why they pick had boys, always. They don't want a girl. There's a they scene deal- in what might have been <laughs> yes. where where 
Rodney tries to berate Sean for letting Sebastian watch Dr. Phil or something mm-hmm. like that. And Sean yeah. says, yeah, because we don't have to grow up retarded, you know, socially retarded like you. Yes. <laughs> he calls yes, Rodney exactly. out on it. Yes. <laughs> because they are socially retarded, but both of them are socially retarded, okay? But for Rodney... But Rodney's is more of, obvious. Yes. Yeah, because... John can can paste that that nice shiny sheen on, and people see their social skills relayed back if he gives them that little half smile he does, you know, where it looks like he's agreeing with them. With internally he's going, "You're a dickhead," you know, or "I'd really like to shoot you," or you know, whatever it is that he's saying. Or um, John's getting a pass because he's attractive. Yes, very. You know, um, you know, and that, people that who are attractive get a pass. Thing. Yes. He's very, he's very attractive. I'm not saying that McKay isn't attractive. He's a good-looking man. But John is very attractive. And people mm-hmm. like him tend to skate by on emotional, social issues. They, they get away with shit that the rest of us don't. This is true. And it's, it's Mean Girls. Hello, there, there's a movie on, on you know, um, being pretty and, and being a bitch. You know, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Rodney, Rodney gets by on it because he's smart, because he uses his intelligence like a sledgehammer, okay? And he will, he will hammer people with his brain um, until they, they realize that, you know, he's right, they're wrong, live with it. It doesn't matter if he's actually right, Okay. But he's gonna he's gonna do his level best to make sure everybody in the area knows that he's well he's the next step you know from from whatever and yes the door is squeaky uh, so is Amazon sorry um, Marley you're just having all sorts of comments I have a friend who didn't believe in McShep because Shepard is too beautiful for Rodney I commented much much earlier in this discussion and it was only on the uh, chat room but um, does anybody remember and it's 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 a power couple that's completely defunct now but Billy Joel and Christy Brinkley um, there was a, the, a couple made of complete and utter visual opposites. I had no idea what was going on with that um, so it, it's uh, if you look at it just on the visual cues, Billy Joel sure as hell did not deserve Christy Brinkley, but something was going on there, and they were they were happy together for quite a while. You know, um, there are other power couples out there where one of you know the the there's the absolutely gorgeous you know whatever person, and then there's the um, ordinary looking spouse. You know. Not everybody can be, you know, Angelina Jolie and um, Brad Pitt. It just, it's just not going to happen. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, part of I think um, the thing with Rodney and the reason I went back in time for him 
when I did the Young Sentinels and Guides is, um, well, it's one to play with them when they're younger, when, they're, when they've got less baggage. I mean, they've both got plenty. But it's, um, he's not quite as twisted because of the various uh, things that would have happened before he entered government service, before we saw him and met him in that first episode of, you know, SG-1. So, you know, it was a chance to, it was a chance to, to play with a guy who's, who's going to spend his late teenage years and the rest of his life with um, somebody who needs him to be the emotional foundation of his world, and it's going to cause them both to grow up. So it's interesting. All right, next question. <laughs> Ask some more questions, bitches. <laughs> Come on. And I mean that in an overall term, not like I'm trying to determine you're all bitches. I don't know. Just yeah. don't be insulted. I don't mean it to be an insult. I hope not. Um, Let me look at some of your questions that you've gotten, and I want to... Let's see. Okay, what was the most difficult scene you um, you had to write for Rodney? The most difficult scene I had to write for Rodney? Um, For me... um, Azora, I love you. You're my favorite. <laughs> I'm going to ignore that because if I answer it, it's probably going to get really horrible. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> For those of you on the podcast, Azora just asked in the chat, <sighs> what do you have against poor defenseless tea ladies? <laughs> At this point, if you keep bringing the, the old bat up, I'm going to kill the bitch at the end of that damn book. You're See not going to kill my tea lady. <laughs> I don't care. I'll kill the tea lady. There's going to be a dead tea lady in this thing. I swear to God. <laughs> yes, but not mine. You have to make your own. <laughs> That's okay. I'll find a tea lady to kill. Damn it. Oh, anyways, the most yeah. difficult thing you had to write for Rodney. The most difficult scene I had to write for Rodney is it's in my um, in my being different <laughs> universe where John the ATA uh, gene it's it's always been active in him he's always known he's a little off from the rest of humanity and it's in the the one called unexpected consequences and. Um, I guess the, the the scene in question is where uh, John is coming back from being, you know, the bug. And it's at the very end, um, after he's apologized to everybody else, after he's um, gone and um, – after John's gone and, and made amends, um, 
and he goes and he he finds Rodney, and it's um, Rodney has to Rodney has to uh, explain what was going on, why he was so why he was so upset that you know he was locked out of John's. Why he wouldn't be? Why he wasn't allowed to be at John's side? What was caught? What mm-hmm. was the, the reason? And it was, um, it was difficult because I couldn't let loose the. I had to make him coherent. I had to make him actually um, explain what was going on, other than you know this chatted string of profanity and fuck you. You know, it, <laughs> it, it had, to, you know, it, it couldn't be, you know, the the um, Canadian scientific version of the Tasmanian devil as he sits there and, you know, produces whatever. It actually had to be, you know, what was going on. And what also made it hard was John had to man up. He had to tell what was going on in his head, you know, um, You know, it's it, that. I mean, it's four paragraphs. Well, actually, I take that back. It's six paragraphs long. Is this whole scene, and it's it was one of those things that I sat there and I. It took me a while to write. It wasn't easy, and you know, for the two of them being as emotionally constipated as they are, you know, that that was difficult. What was the happiest yeah. scene? Uh, Most emotionally satisfying, you know, just. Um, The happiest scene is actually one where he's not really on, um, he's not really on scene. It's, um, where is it? It was, I think it was an evil author day. Um, or actually, no, I take that back. It wasn't. It was a scene I wrote that I'm going to be tucking into the epilogue of, um, you know, uh, an uncomplicated choice if I ever get around to it, um, where Jeannie is staring up at the sky wondering where, where Rodney is. And, you know, there's he only has one line, and it's, you know, he, he's... He's saying, "Hey, I'm home, basically." You know, and it's that's that yeah. was the happiest thing. You know, the the whole thing with the birth of his son in this what would be the same universe with Jamie. That one I had to. I mean, how do you write something that you never see in the show, so you don't know how he's going to react to it, and not have it be completely horrifically out of character? And so. Um, it's, it's um, you know, the whole flailing thing where he's, you know, worried about, you know, we're going to be, I'm going to be a bad parent, I'm going to make the kid cry, you know, it's going to hate me, you know, what am I going to do? That I had no problems with. That was easy. I knew he was going to do that. But the whole what happens when, you know, he he's dealing with this child on a day-to-day basis, is he going to do what he did to those kids? Um, in the, the the 
on the planet where they never get above 25? Is he going to basically yeah. do them like little science experiments? Or is he going to be an actual father? And the choice was made to treat, for him to treat Jamie as the, the precious little bundle of insanity that the kid is. You know, um, and he loves that child dearly. So, yeah. Okay. You generally pair Rodney with John, just like I do. Yes. Did you pair yes. him with anybody else, man or woman, who and how? The only one I might be comfortable pairing them with, um, pairing Rodney with, is Daniel. And mainly because they both have the absent-minded scientist thing going and they both can be utter assholes and they ignore it with each other. They don't notice. All right. Um, My favorite Atlanta scene uh is when Daniel comes through the gate and he goes, hey, Rodney. He's like, he's so excited to see the the Uh city and Rodney. And Rodney's like, oh, fuck. (laughs) The look on the case face is fucking hilarious. Hey, Rodney. And and Daniel's just so excited. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Rowan comments that they forget to spend time with each other. They... Once they get wrapped up in each other's thing, yes, they, they um, you know, for each other's, you know, projects, yes, they'd, they'd get very wrapped up with that. And it would be, you know, there would be a lot of, of exclusion. But I can't see it with, with I can't see it with O'Neill because he just, he's not a Rodney fan. Um, I can't see mm-hmm. it with, uh, with Tilk because... I'm sorry, he's 100-plus years old. He's like a slightly more homicidal and weird Vulcan sometimes. Um, and he's got this really hot female Jaffa that he keeps chasing around the universe. Um, <laughs> Who's very hot. Hey, it, yeah, it, wasn't it Seven of Nine, the, the gal who played her, that was the, the Jaffa he was interested in? Um, anywho. No, it was um, Jolene Blaylock who played uh, T'Pol on you Enterprise. You are correct, yes. Um, Same cat, sure different that, woman. Yes. <laughs> I, I am, there is no way in the, on, on you know, God's green earth I'm going to pair Rodney and Sam together because that's a real good recipe for having um, a nice new uh, planetary ring called Rubble where, the, where Earth was. Um, it just doesn't work. Um, for the SGA characters, Elizabeth doesn't respect Rodney. There's there's right. just none really there. Agreed. So I can't see anything happening on that front. Um, Rodney doesn't respect Carson in a lot of ways as far as his, his career. I mean, he calls him um, uh, a sheep shearing, you know, Voodoo doctor. doctor. Actually, I called him a sheep fucking voodoo doctor a couple times, but whatever. Um, You know, it's just there's no respect there for for his career, even though he really is happy when the doctors pay attention to him. Again, going back to the really fucked up childhood he had. Um, Orn doesn't respect him. He doesn't like him all that much. Um, Mm -hmm. At least not at the beginning. There's, There's a great deal of respect at the end. Okay, but that took 
four years for that to develop. Um, yeah, when I wrote it, I had to make them have a history in the past. Mm-hmm. Lauren met McKay when he went when when they were on Earth. Right. I had to build that in because otherwise, Lauren didn't have enough experience to be mm-hmm. immunized to McKay's brand of McKay. <laughs> yes, his his brand of crazy. Um, in in chat, there's a comment. There's two comments. Marley commented that Tarlanax wrote some great uh, O'Neill, Rodney, and she did. And I don't remember where it is, but I can find it. They're they're really good, and she makes it work. I just don't think I can. Um, another comment from Rowane was Mystic wrote one a while back that was a uh, Jack Rodney John, and that's um, something something in G and blue jeans or whatever. I, I remember the story, and that one worked. But at the beginning, there wasn't much of anything there other than I really don't like you. Um, but it, it, they worked their way up to it, so that took time and it was fun. Um, Crusading jeans. Yeah. Um, everybody else for Taylor, for Ronan, for John, I could more believably in some ways see the four of them, you know, the, the team crawling into bed with each other. I mean, it would be a very hot bed, but I, I could see the four of them doing it um, because they counterbalance each other. I could never see Ford and, and Rodney together because, again, Ford has no respect. No. no. And you, you have to have respect to have love. Yes. Unless they're family. You can love your family and not respect them, but that's a whole different ballgame. Yes, that's, that's, this is true. And, yeah, we've got that. Um Oh, I can see that picture. Uh, Rowan comments, um, Mo loves seeing Ronan, Top John, and Rodney with Taylor directing them all. <laughs> I see that. That's, that's a nice picture. Thanks, Awfully. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of good things with that. Um, next question. We've, only got, we've still got some time. Oh, sorry. I was trying to find that Tarlin fic. I'm over here on AO3. Tarlin wrote a it's lot okay. of Stargate it, fiction, just FYI. <clears throat> um, oh, my gosh, she did. I know, right? I was like, damn. Yeah. Uh, she still writes some. It's fun. Character-wise, how did you determine what you could and couldn't alter about Rodney in your AUs? Oh well. Um, when oh, I started, I what, you think about okay. that, and I'll answer Barbara's question. Well, Barbara's thing here. I can't see Rodney and Zelenka. Bar, um, Barbara, I bet you I could write it, and you would. I can. I can totally see that. I can see Zelenka topping the fuck out of Rodney. Just bam. Rodney be all just gone. Go, duh. Like, what was your name again? Fuck it, I don't care. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I'd make you want it like a boss. And McKay, too. Yeah. Okay, go on now. Answer the question. Okay. Um, how, do I, how do I change things? 
the first stuff I wrote in the Stargate universe was both Light of Indifference, and then um, it, it went into and a complicated choice. And those two, Slow Sight started out as a a turn, basically a turn to the left with um, with Canon, and I was very married to Canon when I started that thing. Um, I, I've since been fixed of that particular problem, and you know things have gone wandering far afield since. You but, are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Uh huh. What ended up happening? Um... <laughs> so she had a canon problem. It was ridiculous. We had to fix hey, look, that. Isn't that right, Chris? At, yes. At, most of the time now, when I point out a canon mistake, it's it's a factoid for the the the, the scene, not scenery, but the. Um, the structure of the scene, like Atlantis is not 10,000 some odd years old. She's a couple oh, million. Oh, by me. <laughs> yes. And yes, that, that was one was big. Argument. That one was big. Yes, that, that was indeed an argument. And we, I actually found the, the, um, the gif that shows the beginning, epi- or like 30 seconds of you know, the opening episode. Yeah, I got my way on that one. Um, as far as how I changed Roddy oh, from story to story. I have a question. Sure. I have a question to you guys. Um, Tarlin series, is it one-way ticket where Jack goes on vacation to Atlantis and ends up with McKay? We'll find out. Go ahead. And, um, um, while, go they're, ahead. while they're figuring that one out. Uh After I finished Close um, Light of Indifference, I was writing the Being Different universe. I was writing the Unlikely and the Unwilling universe. Um, those ones where I I picked uh, you know situations and um, and worlds, and I I played with Rodney based off of that. Um, Being different is he's. When he got the the, the gene um, treatment and got the ATA gene, he got a slightly watered down version of what John has, where he can tell when there's a gene holder around him, when he'll respond to them being in the area without noticing. At least he's he's doing that now. You know, if I ever write again, he's probably going to start paying attention to that. The unlikely and the unwilling. He's a he's a guide in that. He's um, he's got a lot of other things that have changed in his um, in his personality. Not just you know that he's you know um, not just that he's you know what amounts to the more emotionally grown up of the duo. He has to be if he's a guide. Uh, yeah. Um, so the rest of which them, which Rodney is your favorite? Young Sentinels and Guides. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the unlikely and the unwilling is fun. It, it's that one. It's a Rodney who is basically saying, "Fuck the whole world," you know. Um, I'm not happy with what I am, but you know, I'm dealing with it. But 
Young Sentinels and Guides, he's, he's brash, he's smart, he's, he's, got, he's got this really hot, sexy guy, and he's mine, and I get to touch him and suck him and do all these lovely things with him. And <laughs> it's a comedy. <laughs> Sorry, you got me tickled. Sorry. <laughs> but you got to know that's what he's thinking. He can look at, at John and, you know, the word mine and everything in there and hot and sexy and mine and, ooh, I want to lick that. All of that's going through his head. And, you know, John is looking at him saying, you know, thinking the exact same thing. And it's, it's that, that, that necessary confidence that they both need because, you know, Rodney is, Canon Rodney is very sure of his brain. He knows he's smart. He knows that he can do things, you know, with his brain. But for the rest of, of his life, he, can't, he doesn't know any. No, it's not, you know. The, 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 you know, he's, he's the, the really, really geeky nerd who all of a sudden is sitting at the cool kid table. It just, it, it's, it does not compute. And so in Young Sentinels and Guides, um, well, you know, frankly, young Rodney McKay was really, I mean, he was really pretty. There's that one picture of him with the halo. <laughs> Danny Hewlett was really Angel pretty. Wayne. Oh, my God, yes, very pretty, um, which is basically what I'm using as my mental picture for, for um, the 19-year-old Rodney that I've gotten there. But, you know, it's... Oh, we're um, down to a minute. Okay. He's, basically, every Rodney is different based off of what I put him in, and that's, you know, that's all I can say. Oh, I think it's important to recognize the environment and, and how it changes your character. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. always fun to explore McKay that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the, the 30 ass seconds. It to me. It's the ass that in that, that it you is, know, it, particular It is a thing. great ass. Great ass. Oh, my God. And on that note, we're gonna, David Hewlett has a great ass. That's our yeah. show. I hope he never, ever listens ever. to this. <laughs> Have a good evening. (laughs) Shut up, During May Memorial Month. Now through May 31st, we will accept your credit application. A $200 down payment and a $350 a week paycheck can get you a new Mitsubishi. Don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. You can win $5,000 with our 5K test drive giveaway. Visit BillPennyMitsubishi.com. To qualify buyers on a free credit, warranty valid through 10-year ownership on new vehicles only. One entry for household per month. Must be 21 with valid driver's license and insurance. See dealer for details.